Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. We're going to get back to our dynamic duo of Cooley and DeBakey, picking up where we left off. The two surgeons had met and were both working at the Baylor University College of Medicine. We'll cover their life's work, the origins of their feud, and their eventual reconciliation. So now let's get to the heart of the matter in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Okay, let's start with Dr. DeBakey and his work following World War II. One of his first firsts, so to speak, was performing the first abdominal aortic aneurysm repair in the U.S. in 1952, being beaten by a few months for the world's first by Dr. Charles Dubois in Paris. These first aneurysm repairs were completed with aortic homographs that DeBakey harvested himself, meaning using donor segments of aorta. Realizing that an artificial graft would be a much better alternative, he set out to find one. Now, do you remember from part one how Michael DeBakey learned how to sew from his seamstress mother? Well, here's where it paid off. As mentioned, DeBakey was working on resecting or surgically removing aortic aneurysms, meaning a dilating of a blood vessel, typically from weakening of the wall. Now, left untreated, these can rupture and be rapidly fatal. The problem with removing them was how to replace the segment of artery. Looking for a substitute, DeBakey went into a department store to buy some nylon, which had been suggested as a possible replacement material. The store was out of fabric, and so the sales clerk suggested a new material called Dacron, which is the trade name for an artificial polyester material. DeBakey bought a yard of it, took out his wife's sewing machine, and proceeded to sew a tube the size of an aorta. Now here's a quote from DeBakey, quote, I tested these tubes on animals, and after two years I decided they worked. This is how it often happens. A problem you face with a patient creates something that you want to do research on, end quote. DeBakey initially created and sewed all of his own Dacron grafts and even produced them for his colleagues until they became commercially available in the late 1950s. Amazingly, this is still the primary material used in aortic grafts today. Now, another major accomplishment at first for DeBakey was performing the first documented carotid endarterectomy in 1953. Now, the carotids are two of the major vessels supplying blood to the brain, and the name comes from the Greek word karotis, which means drowsy, as one would be if the blood to your brain was cut off. An endarterectomy is the removal of the inner lining of the artery, along with any obstructing plaques, to improve the blood flow. Dr. DeBakey's first patient was having symptoms of insufficient blood flow to the brain, and following the surgery, they remained symptom-free for over 19 years of follow-up. The next area we should cover is Dr. DeBakey's achievements in the field of coronary revascularization. The coronary arteries feed the heart muscle itself, and blockages in these arteries lead to angina, which is chest pain, and if the blood flow is completely blocked, myocardial infarction, or what is known colloquially as a heart attack. In the early 1960s, DeBakey published data on the use of his Dacron grafts for coronary artery bypass, meaning to bypass or skip over areas of blockage, on dogs in an experimental setting. By 1966, DeBakey performed the first successful case of a saphenous vein coronary bypass, which he did after a complication occurred during a coronary endarterectomy. Now, the saphenous veins are superficial veins in the leg that can be removed without an issue, as the deeper veins of the leg can perform the same function. The name actually comes from the Latin word for vein, saphena, which therefore translates to vein vein, not the most clever of names. But perhaps one of the biggest areas of interest for Dr. DeBakey was in total artificial hearts, hereby referred to as TAHs, and ventricular assist devices, 
hereby referred to as VADs. Now, the idea behind both was to provide alternatives and bridges to cardiac transplantation. So time to quickly review some definition of terms. An artificial heart is a mechanical pump that replaces the function of the heart, either temporarily in patients awaiting transplantation or permanently, and don't worry, we'll get into some examples later, and tends to include the removal of the native heart. A ventricular assist device is a pump used to partially or completely replace the function of either the right ventricle, left ventricle, or both. These are used in conjunction with the native heart and can be used in the short term to allow for recovery of an acute injury to the heart as a bridge to cardiac surgery or more long-term in patients with advanced heart failure that are not candidates for transplantation. Now, when his early attempts at creating artificial hearts was not successful in animal models, DeBakey turned his focus to VADs. His research in this area began in 1960, and he described it as being highly controversial. The heart-lung machine was now in use, and surgeons knew this was very helpful in recovery periods after a patient's surgery, and were skeptical that this new device would replace it. However, in 1966, the VAD was used for the first time in a 37-year-old woman, which kept her alive long enough to wean her off of the heart-lung machine. He would continue this work on VADs for many years, but to fully understand the controversy between him and Cooley, we have to talk a bit more about the artificial heart. Now, this is an idea that has captured the imagination of both the medical world and society. Given the cultural importance we attach to the heart, it's no surprise that people are very interested in this concept. Amazingly, the first to hypothesize about mechanical circulatory support was Julien Jean Caesar Le Gallois in 1812. Here's how he described his idea. This is translated from the French, but not by me. Quote, if the place of the heart could be supplied by injection, and if, for the regular continuance of this injection, there could be furnished a quantity of arterial blood, whether natural or artificially formed, then life might be indefinitely maintained, end quote. This was a great concept, but the first real breakthrough was with Dr. Alexis Carell, working with Charles Lindbergh, when they developed a blood pump, which led to an in vitro artificial heart-like device to keep organs alive when removed from the body. Now, we covered this in episode 20, so if that tantalizes you, go have a listen. Quick side note. Did you know the word tantalize comes from the Greek myth about Tantalus, who was punished in the underworld, made to stand in a pool of water underneath a fruit tree? Whenever he tried to reach the fruits, the branches would move higher out of reach, and when he tried to take a sip of the water, the pool would recede. Now you know. Now, the first to create a functioning total artificial heart was Soviet scientist Dr. Vladimir P. Demikhov, working in relative obscurity, who did so in 1937. If the name rings a bell, it may be because he was mentioned in episode 29, dedicated to the history of head transplants. <gasps> Seriously, have a listen when you're done this episode, it's pretty wild. Now, you may remember the experiment of attaching the head of one dog onto the body of another dog, done in the 1950s, the most successful of which lived for 29 days. And that was work done by Demikhov. But what we're interested in today is some of the work he did years before this. Now, he's an interesting character, so let's do a quick bio on him and then cover his work. The first important thing is to dispel a myth about him. While he was known for his manual dexterity and skill in experimental surgery, and is often referred to in the literature as Soviet surgeon Vladimir Demikhov, he actually never attended medical school, let alone received surgical training. Born July 18, 1916, in Yarazenskaya village to a single mother, 
that his father had been killed in Russia's civil war, his initial training was at a vocational school to learn the trade of a fitter. Vladimir worked as a mechanic in the local tractor factory in Stalingrad before entering Zoranez State University to study biology. An interesting anecdote from his student years is that all new admissions had to present a photograph of themselves with a white shirt and necktie. Vladimir's family was too poor to afford these, so a kind photographer superimposed these clothes onto his picture. As a 21-year-old fourth-year biology student in Voronezh, Soviet Union, Demikov designed the world's first implantable total artificial heart. It was the size of a dog's native heart, and that is the animal he used to first test the device. This occurred on March 24, 1938. Here's an excerpt of the report of his experiment from the university newspaper. Quote, At 6.15 p.m., the dog's death was confirmed, caused by shutting down the native heart by the means of ligation of coronary arteries. Twelve minutes later, the heart replacement device was turned on and brought into motion by an electromotor. Within 16 minutes on the device, the dog began demonstrating obvious signs of life, respiratory, ocular, and protective reflexes, up to the point of the most sensitive reflex. Further, Comrade Demikov discusses the scientific and practical merits that his work could have upon further development, such as studying the problems related to organism death, heart surgery, anabiosis, which is a great word which means temporary suspended animation or greatly reduced metabolism, the effect of pharmaceutical drugs on individual systems of a living organism, and so forth, end quote. Just as an aside, the dog survived for two and a half hours following this procedure. Now, clearly, Demikov had big plans for his invention. However, after conducting three experiments in 1938, his work was disrupted by World War II, during which he served in the Red Army as a pathologist, again despite any formal training. A story that Demikov himself recalls from his service time is quite interesting. He relayed how some soldiers, in an effort to escape the terrible conditions of the battlefield, would shoot themselves to escape to the relatively safer confines of the hospital. As this was considered a crime to the Red Army, Demikov would be brought in as a forensic pathologist to assess the injuries and determine if they were self-inflicted. In an act of bravery, he would do his best to dismiss as many as he could, even if they were obvious, at great risk to himself, likely saving the lives of countless soldiers from military justice. Now, following a lengthy hiatus, Demikov returned to research in the late 1940s, and while he did do some refining of his TAH, his focus by then was on organ transplantation, as well as coronary artery bypass. He actually performed a successful bypass on a dog on July 29, 1953. To put that into perspective, the very first coronary artery bypass on a human was done on May 2, 1960, by Robert H. Goetz at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Bronx Municipal Hospital Center. Now, despite the significant advances Demikoff made to science and surgery, he lived most of his life in obscurity and poverty, sharing a two-bedroom apartment for many years with his wife, daughter, and mother, as well as the occasional experimental dog. Although word eventually got out of the Soviet Union about his revolutionary experiments, it was difficult for him to publish in English-language journals and even more difficult for interested surgeons to visit his lab. Christian Barnard, of heart transplant fame, visited Moscow in 1962 and was able to divert himself from the planned itinerary long enough to meet Demikov, whom he credits with inspiration to attempt the world's first heart transplant. Now, despite some late recognition, he continued to live a humble life 
and died in his small apartment outside Moscow on November 22, 1998. Now, apparently, Dr. DeBakey himself was in Moscow to participate in the coronary artery bypass surgery for Russia's president, Boris Yeltsin, in 1996, and wanted to meet Demikhov. DeBakey's first question was, May I pay the last honors to Professor Demikhov? Which one author pointed out was wrong on two fronts. First, he was never given the title of professor, and second, he was very much alive in 1996. However, no one in the Russian group seemed to know who he was, and so the two never got to meet. Now, the next major step in creating a machine that could at least temporarily take over the function of the heart was the invention of the heart-lung bypass machine by Dr. John Gibbon Jr., which we covered in the podcast episode 63. This was first used in humans in 1952. In 1948, a medical student at Yale University named William H. Sewell Jr. decided to build an artificial heart for his graduating thesis. Having seen Dr. Gibbon's early work on the heart-lung machine, Sewell thought that the patient's lungs could be used to oxygenate the blood, and so only a single or pair of pumps would be needed to replace the heart. He was somewhat successful, but essentially as a proof of concept rather than a working model. Much of the initial work on the total artificial heart was done in the 1950s by Willem Kolff at the Cleveland Clinic. In 1957, Kolff and his associate Tetsuzo Akutsu implanted a TAH in a dog which survived for one and a half hours. By the early 1960s, their dogs were living longer than a day with the device, giving hope that a human implantation of a TH would be the next breakthrough. In December of 1968, Domingo Leota, a surgeon from Argentina who had worked at the National University of Cordoba, but was then a member of the Baylor University College of Medicine's laboratory research team, came to Cooley for advice. Leota had done some preliminary work on TAH in Argentina and had joined the Baylor staff to develop a left ventricular assist device for which DeBakey had received a federal grant. The problem was that DeBakey forbade him to work further on the TAH. Leota asked Cooley if he should pursue the TAH project on his own and whether Cooley would be willing to work with him on it. Cooley, thinking that the TAH would be useful to keep patients alive until a suitable donor was available, agreed. In the spring of 1969, they had completed the fabrication and in vitro and in vivo testing. The device was implanted in seven calves, the last surviving for 44 hours. Now, the fateful day that led to the split between the two surgeons happened soon after. On April 4th, 1969, which was a good Friday, Cooley decided to use the total artificial heart prototype on an actual patient. Cooley was consulted on a 47-year-old patient named Haskell Karp with severe congestive heart failure and a left ventricular aneurysm following several myocardial infarctions over a period of 10 years and a rapidly deteriorating condition. Cooley performed a left ventricular aneurysm resection and a remodeling procedure, but it was clear the patient would not survive the operation. And so Cooley did not waver and implanted his total artificial heart with the intent that it be used to bridge the patient to transplantation. He was assisted in the operation by Leota, and it was initially deemed a success. Three days later, a donor heart was available in Boston. Cooley dispatched two of the younger surgeons to retrieve the donor. And note I said donor, not donor heart, but the actual donor. On the flight back, the plane's hydraulic system failed, and the pilot was forced to land without brakes at a small airport halfway to Houston. 
The donor was transferred to another plane and finally arrived safe in Houston. But on the ambulance ride to the hospital, the donor's heart fibrillated, requiring chest compressions for five minutes and electric shock to return to normal rhythm. The TH was removed after 64 hours following implantation, and Mr. Carp received the donor heart. Sadly, he died of pneumonia 32 hours post-transplant. Now, there had been some hemolysis, or breakdown of red blood cells, and decline in renal function. But the total artificial heart had effectively supported Mr. Carp's circulation. The Leota TAH is now on display in the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. Now, despite the historical implications of such an operation, DeBakey and many others in the medical community disagreed with Cooley's off-label use of the device, which was still experimental and had not yet received FDA approval. DeBakey said, quote, It was a childish act. He just wanted to be able to say that he was the first one to use an artificial heart in a patient. You don't let your ambition get you into trouble, end quote. Of course, Cooley saw it in a different light, stating that implanting the device was an act of patriotism, since he didn't want the Russians to be the first to implant a total artificial heart, as they'd already beaten the U.S. by putting the first man into space. Odd to think of the Cold War seeping into medicine, but if this podcast has proven anything, it's that medicine and surgery do not live in a hermetically sealed bubble, but are very much influenced, and influence, the wider world. McCooley further defended his actions by stating that it is a doctor's obligation to do whatever was necessary to save a patient's life, an argument I find more convincing than the patriotic one, but given the zeitgeist at the time, I understand it. He went on to say, quote, If you are out in the middle of the ocean and someone throws you a life preserver, you don't look at it to see if it has been approved by the federal government, end quote. Cooley's desire to expand the field of cardiac surgery did make him come off as conceited to some people, which leads to one of my favorite anecdotes about him. During a trial, a lawyer asked him if he considered himself to be the best surgeon in the world. He replied yes. The lawyer responded, Don't you think that's being immodest? Cooley replied, Perhaps, but remember, I'm under oath. So there you have it. This disagreement led to the resignation of Dr. Cooley from Baylor. The dispute simmered on for four decades, only ending when Dr. DeBakey was accepted into the Denton A. Cooley Cardiovascular Society in 2007. Although portrayed by some as a bitter feud, it was more of a rivalry between fierce competitors, which helped spur both men to push surgical boundaries. So let's go back to DeBakey and talk about some of those boundaries that he continued to push. He continued to develop the VAD, and in collaboration with NASA, developed an axial flow pump, and eventually what was called the Micromed DeBakey VAD. So in 1984, NASA engineer David Saussier underwent a heart transplant. When he recovered, it was proposed that NASA and DeBakey team up to create an implantable VAD. This would first be a temporary recovery device with the idea of eventually creating a permanent implant. Now, I always find these crossovers between medicine and tech industries to be fascinating. NASA had developed a state-of-the-art technology and turbopump designs for use in space shuttle engines, along with computer software to analyze fluid dynamics. Now, they are able to miniaturize this for a very small heart pump. Isn't that amazing? Now, two issues in creating an artificial heart are hemolysis, where red blood cells are broken apart, and the development of thrombi, or blood clots. Using NASA supercomputers, the team was able to make predictive models of the VAD pumps 
based on changes made to the design. One major difference to the natural heart they came up with was to change how the blood is pumped. Instead of a pulsed flow, the VAD pumps blood with a rotating screw-like impeller, which is a device that forces liquid in a given direction under pressure. As DeBakey said, quote, The VAD doesn't eliminate the pulse. The heart stays there. What's different is that the pulse is much stronger, end quote. The key was that the final device only had one moving part. Now, by the 1990s, implantable, electrically-powered VADs came onto the market. Now, there have been three generations of pumps, with an example of the last called HeartMate 3. VADs are now used in three clinical situations. As a bridge to transplantation, when clinical status of patients who are listed for transplantation is deteriorating rapidly before a suitable donor heart becomes available. As a bridge to recovery in patients who are expected to recover left ventricular function following an acute illness like myocarditis and as an alternative to transplant in patients who are not candidates for a donor heart. Now, of course, we have only superficially covered the achievements of Dr. DeBakey. His legacy includes, of course, the training of dozens of surgeons, and he had two principles for his trainees, attention to detail at all times and pursue excellence in all things. Now, while it has been said he had a temper and was difficult to work with, and he was nicknamed the Texas Tornado, His high expectations no doubt drove his students to become world-class surgeons themselves. He published more than 1,400 medical articles and chapters, and even wrote his own books, including The Living Heart, The Living Heart Diet, and The New Living Heart. His list of awards and appointments are too numerous to recount here, but are very impressive. Another testament to his abilities is the list of world leaders that sought out his expert treatment, and this includes American Presidents Lyndon Johnson, John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon, the Duke of Windsor, Russian President Boris Yeltsin, as mentioned earlier, the Shah of Iran, King Leopold of Belgium, and King Hussein of Jordan. DeBakey was also a successful administrator, being invited in 1968 to become Dean of Baylor University College of Medicine and given the task of reforming the school. Given all of these achievements, you would think that DeBakey was a workaholic, and he freely admitted that he was. But let me quote him responding to this, quote, I may be considered a workaholic, but I enjoyed it. The work was part of the joy of life, and there is nothing I enjoyed more than taking care of patients, End quote. As proof of this love of work, DeBakey continued to assist in surgery into his early 90s. On January of 2006, at the age of 97, Dr. DeBakey was hospitalized for chest pain. Here's how he himself described it, quote, The pain came like a bullet out of the blue. I was alone when it started. My wife and daughter had gone out. The pain is often described as the worst pain you can have. The pain was so severe that I would have welcomed anything to relieve it, including death. I wasn't going to fight it. I look upon death as part of living, just as some trees lose all their leaves in the winter and have them replaced in the spring. But at the same time, part of me was thinking, what causes pain? Part of me was doing the diagnosis on myself, which, as it turned out, was correct. Aortic dissection. I've written more articles about the condition than anybody in the world, and I resigned myself to having a heart stoppage. The pain didn't teach me anything about the heart. It simply emphasized what I had already learned. I was surprised to find myself recovering after the surgery, then gratified to have been given the second life. The doctor who operated on me only a few years ago was one that I had trained. I was lucky to have somebody like that, end quote.
So it was a somewhat ironic twist of fate that he was found to have an ascending aortic dissection. After much debate, DeBakey underwent surgical repair, an operation he had pioneered decades before. It took him months to recover, which seems reasonable considering his age, but was eventually released from hospital in good health. On July 11th, 2008, more than two years post-op, Dr. DeBakey died of natural causes at the Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas. He was buried in Arlington National Cemetery after being the first person ever to lay in repose in Houston's City Hall. Okay, now let's return to Cooley. One interesting boundary that he helped move forward was the issue of using blood products in cardiac surgery. In 1961, the first asanguinous, or bloodless, prime solution for the heart-lung machine was introduced. It was actually a sugar solution. This bloodless prime revolutionized cardiopulmonary bypass and also allowed Cooley to operate on patients of the Jehovah's Witness faith. After 15 years' experience, Cooley published a paper on more than 500 operations in this population, proving that cardiac surgery could be safely performed without blood transfusions. Now, I certainly remember this being a topic in medical school in nearly every ethics class, but I never really questioned why Jehovah's Witnesses refuse blood products. So let's take a deeper dive. Firstly, what are Jehovah's Witnesses? These are people who follow a denomination of Christianity that arose from a Bible study group in the 1870s in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. While this may be an oversimplification, the idea was to restore faith to that of first century Christianity. But it wasn't until 1945, just a few years after the U.S. developed a national blood collection program, that the leaders of the faith declared that all followers must refuse blood transfusions, even in life or death situations, under pain of excommunication, and those that do jeopardize their chance at eternal life in God's kingdom. So, fair to say, pretty high stakes. But where does this belief come from? It's based on the interpretation of a few biblical passages, so let's check them out. And this is taken directly from the Jehovah's Witness website. Genesis 9.4 God allowed Noah and his family to add animal flesh to their diet after the flood, but commanded them not to eat the blood. God told Noah, Only flesh with its soul, its blood, you must not eat. This command applies to all mankind from that time on, because all are descendants of Noah. Leviticus 17.14 You must not eat the blood of any sort of flesh, because the soul of every sort of flesh is its blood. Anyone eating it will be cut off. God viewed the soul or life as being in the blood and belonging to him. Although this law was given only to the nation of Israel, it shows how seriously God viewed the law against eating blood. Acts 15.20 Abstain from blood. God gave Christians the same command that he had given to Noah. History shows that early Christians refused to consume whole blood or even to use it for medical reasons. Essentially, all other Christian and Jewish faith groups interpret these same passages as referring to dietary law, the actual eating of meat containing blood, and, in fact, part of making meat kosher is removing the blood. Whereas the Jehovah's Witness faith feels that these passages indicate that blood is sacred and is not to be used for human consumption, and therefore precludes the acceptance of it in a transfusion. In fact, part of the belief is that any blood that leaves the body must be destroyed. Given the complexities of blood and blood products in modern medicine, this leads to some very specific detail. For example, members are not allowed to do any self-donations, meaning they can't donate their own blood prior to surgery with the intent of using it 
as an autologous donation. However, certain blood plasma fractions, intraoperative blood salvage, heart-lung machines, and dialysis are acceptable. One interesting outcome of this religious belief has been the development of so-called bloodless surgery, which is a set of principles meant to avoid transfusions. Such measures include preoperatively increasing red blood cells with either the hormone erythropoietin, a.k.a. EPO, and this is called blood doping in competitive sports, as well as iron supplements, careful control of bleeding during surgery, and the use of fluids to expand blood volume, and finally, postoperatively minimizing the number of blood draws and the amount of blood drawn. Right, carrying on. As the Texas Medical Center continued to grow, Cooley was inspired to form an institution dedicated to cardiovascular disease. In 1962, he founded the Texas Heart Institute at St. Luke's. Construction for a separate site began in 1967. Around this time, in the early 1960s, Cooley's team at the Texas Heart Institute at St. Luke's Episcopal Hospital had the largest volume of open-heart transplants in the world. Not bad, considering where it started from when DeBakey took over. In fact, Cooley considered the Texas Heart Institute his most important contribution to the field of cardiac care. In an article reflecting on his experiences, Cooley describes the first human heart transplant, which was done in South Africa by the surgeon Christian Bernard in late 1967, as a wake-up call. Cooley sent Bernard a telegram which read, quote, Congratulations on your first transplant, Chris. I will be reporting my first 100 soon, end quote. In May of 1968, Cooley performed the first successful human heart transplant operation in the U.S. By the end of 1968, he had performed 10 transplants, but had become disenchanted due to the inability to mitigate rejection and the lack of donor hearts. This is partly what led to his interest in the total artificial heart. So where did the development of the TH go after our tale with DeBakey and Cooley? Now, Cooley continued to work on it, and in 1972, Japanese doctor and researcher that we met before, Tetsuzo Akutsu, joined his research group to continue the development of the artificial heart. Akutsu had previously worked with Willem Kolff in the Cleveland Clinic, as mentioned earlier. By 1981, the Akutsu heart became the second implantation of an artificial heart in the world. This was done in a 36-year-old man who had heart failure after undergoing a coronary artery bypass operation. He too died after a transplant from overwhelming sepsis. And again, the actual TH worked well, this time showing less damage to the red blood cells. The next model to be used was the Jarvik 7, designed by Robert Jarvik, a physician and researcher at the University of Utah. He was working under Willem Kolff, who had left the Cleveland Clinic in 1967 to start the Division of Artificial Organs at the University of Utah. On December 2, 1982, surgeon William DeVries implanted the Jarvik 7 into a retired dentist named Barney Clark at the University of Utah. He survived for 112 days, although this required frequent visits to the hospital. The next to receive a Jarvik 7 was William J. Schroeder, who survived for 620 days before dying of a stroke. Cooley and his colleagues also implanted two Jarvik 7s, and it was the most widely used of any of the TH designs. In the U.S., there were more than 100 THs implanted by a number of groups, either as bridges to transplant or as complete heart replacements, until the FDA called for a moratorium on the implantation of artificial hearts in 1990. This was done due to concerns about patients' quality of life and the cost of the devices. 
The goal was to create a truly implantable total artificial heart with no external components, which continues with some success, but that is a big topic and perhaps a tale for another time. Now, Cooley's cardiac career was not limited to transplants and artificial hearts. In the 1970s, cabbage, or coronary artery bypass grafts, became the preferred treatment for coronary artery disease. Cooley and the Texas Heart Institute saw a surge of patients, and his practice grew international acclaim, as well as patients from around the world. Cooley continued to develop new procedures and devices, including techniques for repairing aneurysms and defects, and dozens of surgical instruments and products, contributed more than 1,400 peer-reviewed articles, and authored or co-authored 12 books, and of course earned numerous awards and honors. In 1972, Cooley's trainees formed the Denton A. Cooley Cardiovascular Surgical Society, and some former residents formed the Cooley Hands in 1982. For the former, the motto they adopted was taken from the lessons they had learned from Cooley. Modify, simplify, apply. In his presidential address to the Society of Thoracic Surgeons in 1994, Cooley said, quote, We should try to recapture the spirit of challenge and discovery that pervaded my years as a trainee. We must encourage our surgical residents to think independently and to question the validity of certain so-called truths or time-honored treatment methods so that we maintain our specialty's reputation for progress, end quote. Amazingly, Cooley operated on children up to the age of 87, him, not them, and at 93 was still working four days a week for half days. He published a book in 2012 called 100,000 Hearts, detailing the surgeries and some of the stories of his life. I haven't read it, but I'd wager that it would be an interesting read. Let me know if any of you have and what you thought of it. He was married for nearly 70 years, and Cooley's wife Louise predeceased him by a few weeks. Together they had had five daughters. Denton Cooley passed away in Houston, Texas on November 18, 2016 at the age of 96. Let's end our discussion with a quote from Cooley himself about his career. Quote, my good fortune professionally came from the fact that I began my career when heart surgery was in its infancy, when surgeons were free to discover and innovate. I've been a participant in so many breakthroughs primarily because I was there when they occurred. With the advent of the heart-lung machine, for example, we surgeons had the key to a door that had previously been locked. Once we had the key, then we could venture out into unexplored territory." End quote. A true legend of surgery. Okay, time for another Suture Tales segment. For this one, I want to cover a name and procedure I came across while researching this episode, and it was one that I had never heard of before. The Weinberg Procedure. Now in the dustbin of history, this procedure was the first to give hope to patients suffering from debilitating coronary artery disease. Before we get to the operation, let's find out a bit more about the surgeon who created it. Born in 1903 in Montreal, Canada, Arthur Martin Weinberg attended McGill University. The origins of his interest in the heart are said to have begun as a young medical student. Following a strenuous wrestling workout at the McGill Gymnasium, Weinberg and his classmate Eric McNaughton sat discussing an earlier lecture by Professor Horst Ortel about the pathology of coronary artery disease, which primarily involves the surface arteries. Weinberg suggested the possibility of using another artery to graft into the heart muscle, where its branches could join the non-diseased intramyocardial arterioles, 
meaning the small vessels inside the wall of the heart. He considered the left internal mammary artery as an option, as it is near the left ventricle of the heart, and ligating or obstructing it was known to have little consequence. It's interesting to think how this spontaneous insight would profoundly affect medicine. The internal mammary artery is also known as the internal thoracic artery, and it comes off of the subclavian arteries, there's one on each side, to supply the anterior chest wall and breasts. It is now the preferred artery for use in coronary artery bypass surgery, which, as we'll see, replaced the Weinberg operation. It is also used in plastic surgery to create what are called free flaps to reconstruct a breast mound after mastectomy, which involves using a microscope to anastomose or join the artery of the free flap. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. As he was still in training, Weinberg didn't act on his idea until 1930, when his father had a large myocardial infarction and had recurrent angina until his death five years later. This renewed Weinberg's interest in revascularization of ischemic myocardium, and he began performing experimental studies after completing his training. And like so many of his generation, Dr. Weinberg's training was interrupted by World War II, where he served in the Royal Canadian Army Medical Corps. Following his service, Dr. Weinberg became a cardiac surgeon, practicing in the famed Royal Victoria Hospital in Montreal. In 1945, Weinberg attempted internal mammary artery implantation in dogs by dissecting the artery, ligating or tying off the distal end, creating artificial perforations in the ligated end, and inserting it into a tunnel created in the heart muscle. This implantation of the left mammary artery into the left ventricle became known as the Weinberg procedure. The first attempt in a human patient was in 1950. That first patient only survived 62 hours after the operation, but this was viewed as a potential success, as the post-mortem exam revealed a patent internal mammary artery without evidence of infarction, hemorrhage, or hematoma. The article I read did not address the cause of death. He continued to perform the procedure, and by 1958, Dr. Weinberg was able to publish a case series of 57 patients with a 60% survival rate for up to seven years. Considering there were few other options for patients with significant coronary artery disease, this was a major breakthrough. However, a number of other surgeons attempted this operation and had varying degrees of success, so the procedure initially was limited mostly to patients at the Royal Vic in Montreal. Now, the emergence of a new technology, coronary angiography, which allowed doctors to see the coronary arteries and measure the degree of blockage, showed that Weinberg's implants did indeed undergo revascularization, meaning his internal mammary artery vessels developed connections to the vessels in the wall of the heart. This proof made his procedure become very popular, and an estimated 10,000 to 15,000 operations were performed from 1958 to 1975. With improved surgical technique, directly connecting vessels to the coronary arteries and skipping past areas of blockage, known as coronary artery bypass grafts, or cabbages for short, became possible, and so the Weinberg became outdated and soon fell out of favor. But the procedure was an important stepping stone to the current cabbage operation, and maybe most importantly, showed that the internal mammary artery was an expendable artery that resists developing atherosclerosis and thrombosis, making it ideal for cabbage. For his contributions to heart surgery, Dr. Weinberg became a companion of the Order of Canada, which is Canada's highest civilian honor in 1986 at the age of 83, 
he passed away two years later. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. In the next episode, we will cover a topic recommended to me by a very interesting surgeon on the history of parathyroid surgery. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on this podcast or ideas for future episodes and for future Suture Tales. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.